0: galaxy lights, Coachella, lightning bolt necklaces. 2023 was the year of Scandaval. On March 3rd, one cheating scandal launched a reality TV investigation that generated hundreds of conspiracy theories, thousands of podcast episodes, and millions of dollars in revenue. I'm Jody Walker, host of An American Scandival. one retrospective story told
1: in three salacious parts. Listen December 26th on the Ringer Reality feed. This episode is brought to you by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem,
0: Welcome into the Guilty Pleasures feed, part of the Ringer Dish Network. I'm Joanna Robinson. Joining me today, it is the great Alan Seppenwald, one of my favorite people to talk to about television. Hi, Alan. How are you doing?
3: I appreciate that you always put the great in front of my name. It's really, it's like my head is not swelled (laughs) enough. I need like the affirmation constantly. So thank you, Joanna.
0: Alan is the chief TV critic at Rolling Stone, and that's sort of usually enough for me to want to talk to him about anything television, but he has also... Written a new book. Welcome to the OC, The Oral History, along with Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage, who were, uh, you know, showrunners of that show. So, we're here to talk about a very special episode of the OC. It is the 20th anniversary of the best Chrismica ever. Largely considered one of the best holiday episodes of television. Full stop. Alan, like, where does this rank for you in sort of OC episodes in general, and maybe like holiday TV episodes in general?
3: It's high in both. I mean, that's it's one of the best episodes of the OC. It's also a great holiday episode of television. If you are a person of the Jewish faith, as I am, it's it's not a Hanukkah episode, but it's close enough in a field where there's not a lot of those. So it's. But no, it's, it's, it's just a wonderful uh, holiday story and the idea of blended families, which we have more and more, you know, with each passing year. So it's it's really lovely and funny all around, and the idea behind it is great.
0: On another show that I host uh, for The Ringer, Trial by Content, we've been doing three weeks of holiday movies, and we intentionally said like, non-denom- non-denominational holiday, but it was so hard for us to find Hanukkah representation, because there just isn't great Hanukkah representation in holiday films or holiday television. And so you're right that this is not really a Hanukkah episode, but it's almost the closest best thing we have going. Um,
3: One night a couple of weeks ago, while we were still lighting the candles, my kids were complaining about the fact that like, basically our option is the Rugrats uh, Hanukkah special. And I said, well, I could show you this. And I just showed them the teaser for this episode, and they were all amused by it. And I left it there because I figure if any of them ever wants to watch The O.C., go back to the beginning. But there, it definitely, it played even that. They really liked it. And one of them very much liked the phrase, eight days of presents followed by one day of many presents. <laughs>
0: yeah, I, I could see how that would be appealing. Um, the O.C. has a number of different impacts on our culture, whether it's the music that it boosted. There's a, there's a ton of stuff, as you covered in your book, that... Uh, TV was changed in in a significant way because of the OC. But I love this idea that this word, chrismica, or this concept of chrismica, was it created whole cloth for the OC? Or is this something that it was popularized by the OC?
3: It was popularized. The the story goes that Josh Schwartz had everyone in the writer's room and he said, look, I want to do a blended family holiday story about the fact that Seth is trying to, like, combine Christmas and Hanukkah because he wants to have everything, which then becomes a metaphor for the Anna and Summer plot, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. And Mm. he says, like, I want you to write me something about that. And Lauren Gussis, who was the writer's assistant in that first season, pipes up and says, oh, you mean Chrismica? And everyone in the room turns to gawk at her and she explains (laughs) that, like, the neighborhood she grew up in, there were a bunch of blended families and they would celebrate it. And that was the word they used. And Josh Ford says, write me a Christmas episode. And because of that, it's now the phrase that everybody uses.
0: What do you think is the more impactful, uh, not invented, but popularized or whatever, uh, TV holiday Festivus or Christmaka?
3: Ooh, that's tough. I mean, Festivus has had longer time. I think that's like 25 years as opposed to 20 uh, and Seinfeld was obviously always a bigger hit uh, than the OC was. On the other hand, Festivus is such like a sour <laughs> occasion. <laughs> like, I mean, who actually celebrates Festivus as opposed to making a joke about the fact that like, if I'm mad at someone, I'm going to do the airing of the grievances. Whereas, you know, Christmas is a happy idea. So I would like to think that Chris Mica is more enduring, even though I love the Festivus holiday, or at least that episode.
0: One year uh, when I was like in my early 20s living in San Francisco with a bunch of, you know, feckless other friends – we did, you know, and when you're in your early 20s, you get invited to like a lot of different holiday parties, and there was a group of us, and we made the round of all those parties, and we brought a Festivus pole with us to like every single party, just as like a joke. And I'm not saying I'm not saying we, you know, celebrated Festivus the way that the Costanzas would want us to, but uh, you know, we made we made our best effort. I've never celebrated Chris Christmas, but you know, Seth Cohen makes it look absolutely delightful. Um, this is. Just outside of the Chrismica-ness of it, this is an incredible episode of television. It's something that you and I talked about over on the Prestige TV feed when we were doing sort of the OC 20th anniversary celebration episodes early this year, was this idea, and, and this is covered a lot in your book, of Josh and Stephanie and the rest of them being unsure whether or not they would get a second season. This is you know a refrain we hear from a lot of TV creators. And so there's this concept of burning through story, trying yes. to throw everything at the wall in the first season because you don't know if you're getting a second season. And it's funny, I was just texting with you about this. I just recorded an episode that will air in 2024 sometime about... Freaks and Geeks. And Freaks and Geeks is another show where Judd Apatow and Paul Feig will talk about how we didn't know if we were getting a second season, so we threw everything we had into that first season. And so then Freaks and Geeks becomes this sort of perfect jewel box of a season because they put everything into, I think it's 18 episodes thereabouts. The OC on the flip side gets mocked. To a certain degree, for doing that, because then they had to go and make three more seasons. Yeah, what? It, what did? It, um, and I bring that up for this episode because there's so much that happens in this episode, and you can't believe that we're only like a few episodes into the first, like, 13 episodes into the first season and all this stuff is already happening and and will happen over the course of this episode. But what did Josh and Stephanie uh, talk to you about in terms of that idea of burning through story so quickly in the first season of The
3: O.C.? Well, I'll answer that in a second, but you brought up Freaks and Geeks, and so I'm going to talk about Freaks and Geeks for a second, which (laughs) is to say, like, there is no way a normal television show would have had Sam date Cindy Sanders in its first season. That is entirely like a season four plot line. That's just... You know we're going to get canceled, and if we're going to do it, we have to do it right now. Um, I mean, the thing that Josh and Stephanie talked about in terms of Burning Story is, Josh was 27. He had never run a TV show before. Stephanie had done one other TV show before this, this you know short-lived cop show called Fast Lane that nobody remembers. Uh, so they were really inexperienced with this. And their thinking it was just like, if we have an idea, let's do it. And let's not sort of spend more time on it than we need. So... This episode is a continuation of this whole love triangle between Seth and Summer and Anna. And it doesn't happen in this episode. It happens an episode or two later. Seth chooses Anna over Summer. And ordinarily, you you watch TV. You know how this works. I do. If Seth and Anna date on any other show, that's a season. That's a season. and Like, Jim and Karen you know, yes. are dating for about a season, if I remember right, on The Office. That's just the way it goes. The re- you know, uh, Diane and Frazier, if you want to go even more old school, they're together for about a year. This is over in six episodes. Anna decides, you know what, Seth? You're clearly in love with Summer. I'm not going to be like your consolation prize. You know, we're breaking up. And suddenly it's like, okay, you've done that in six episodes. What are you going to do now? And then he and Summer get together a couple episodes after that. And suddenly this couple who any other show would write out for a year two years before they get together, are together by Valentine's Day and are mostly together for the rest of the series. And that's like, well, what stories are you telling now? There was just a lot of that. And they didn't realize at the time how how many problems they were creating for themselves.
0: Yeah, Will They, Won't They is one of the strongest storylines that you can use in episodic television. And it has been the juice behind so many shows that you don't even think about um, and the fact that they just went for it right away with with Seth and Summer when that could have been three seasons of Will They Won't They and you could have as to your point a whole season of Summer you know Seth pining after Summer but she doesn't notice him and then he gets together with Anna and Summer pining after Seth because he's happy and moved on and she's finally noticed him like that's how it usually goes and that's two whole seasons of television right there where people are tuning in for these sort of like longing looks and all these other things the Ross and Rachel you know drag whatever it is and and I can
3: can get impatient with that. Like I definitely yeah, I remember sure. I was in the Parks and Rec writers room one time oh, in the yeah. midst of uh Leslie and Ben can't date because he's her boss. And yeah. I started saying, "Guys, what are you doing? Like they're <laughs> obviously so so good together. Just let them be good together. But I think there's a happy medium between those two things of let's keep throwing artificial obstacles between them as long as we possibly can and let's just rush to put them together. Like you can you can find something in between that, and that can work.
0: Ben, it's it's funny that you bring up Ben and Leslie. And I swear we're going to zoom back to the OC in a second, but Ben and Leslie on Parks and Recreation is one of my favorite examples of, in terms of will they, won't they, they do, and then they that show still found a way to make that relationship dynamic and interesting. Yeah. Whereas so many once once the will they, won't they is over and they do. Like all the all the gas goes out of it, and and I would say with Seth Cohen, um, and Summer, like that there is still some gas in that tank just because of those two performers are so charismatic and charming. Um, another example is Brooklyn Nine Nine. Like I would say that that relationship once they got together is also still uh, enjoyable, Jake and Amy, but it's rare. It's rare, and and it goes back to this idea of like. The Ben and Leslie wedding vows, which is our, like, I love you and I like you. Yeah. Right? We're, like, friends and we're in love. And so with Jake and Amy or with Ben and Leslie, like, you're still watching a friendship that you really enjoy watching as well as a romance. And that's true of Seth and Summer, too, I think. Yeah, I
3: think the key is, and the thing that those couples have in common, is that they are funny together. Like, you know, Adam Brody and Rachel Bilson, they were obviously dating at the time and they had chemistry, which not necessarily all real couples do on screen, but they had chemistry, they were funny together. And so even if there was not romantic tension between the two of them, you could still do very entertaining Seth and Summer stories. The same for Jake and Amy, the same for Leslie and Ben. Whereas like, you know, with all due respect to Jim and Pam, that's not really a funny dynamic. That's you're watching that entirely because ooh, are they going to get together? Like that's the case where the tension was everything. And once you resolve that, You know, there's nothing. Ross and Rachel were kind of the same way. Those characters could be funny with other people, but together, not really so much.
0: Totally great, great call. Um, The other thing, and and I think this is covered in your Christmas section or some other section of your book that we that we talked about. But like, what's going on with Caleb Nickel and? Marissa's mom and how like quickly like we're already to Marissa's parents are separated and Julie Cooper's already moved on to Caleb Nickel, And again, that feels like a season three plot and the and the biggest victim we talked about this i think a little bit when we talked about the oc before but the biggest victim in all of that feels like it's Tate Donovan because there was just like nothing left for him oh, poor once Tate. you took him out of that and then he just like had no spot left in the oc but it's like we're in this episode and you know Kristen and Julie are having tension over the family traditions cuz Julie has already slid slid into the sort of wicked stepmother role this Early in the show, it's astonishing that we're already here.
3: No, it's really crazy. And, you know, the Tate Donovan thing is more like they wanted to do a love triangle between Jimmy and Kirsten and Sandy. And almost immediately they recognized, oh, no, everyone's going to love this couple. We can't threaten them at all. Even though they went up doing it like in later seasons as well. But in that year, they didn't. And once they did that, there was no sort of Jimmy stories. But yeah, Julie getting together with Caleb so quickly after leaving Jimmy. I mean, obviously, like, Alan Dale's a great villain, and putting the two of them together was a smart move, but, like, yeah, yeah. That, she moves fast, man.
0: All right, so bigger picture of your of this great book that you wrote, uh, that you put together, that has all these great quotes, because there's an oral history. Do you have an interview that was your favorite, like, that that produced, I guess, produced... This, this is something that I experienced... Uh, when I wrote my book that came out this year is like sometimes the best stuff comes from the corners of the team that you least expect. So was there anyone you talked to that you were like, wow, this person has so much insight and so much juice and I wasn't expecting it.
3: Autumn Reeser was really good who played Taylor Townsend because she had sort of this, a very different story from everybody else. She came in in the third season. That's a year when everyone on the show was really miserable you know, uh, checked out. Some people were sort of actively trying to get fired. You know, Adam Brody, there's all these Adam Brody stories. And and to his credit, Adam was as candid as he was capable of being. While well, at the same time, a lot of the times I would ask him things and he would just say, I don't remember that. But if people say it, it must be true. But Autumn Reeser is like, She gets her dream, but she comes to the show where nobody wants to be there, where it's not the hit it was when they were there. She didn't get to go to, like, Coachella with the cast. She didn't get to go (laughs) to all these parties, you know, travel the world. She's just a person on sort of, like, a, a sputtering show that used to be a big deal. And so she talked a lot. Like, everybody was nice to her. You know, nobody shut her out. But it's just this very strange environment to go into where you think your dreams are coming true and they're not really anything like you thought they would be. And so she was really good to talk to, because she obviously worked through a lot of this over the last, you know, uh, 15, 16 years since that happened. Uh, And so she was very insightful. And at one point, I did this thing where I just started doing a word search for everybody's, like, full name and colon to see how much I quoted everybody. And she was one of the most quoted, certainly among the cast, whereas Kelly Rowan, who was a very good interview, I barely used anything she said... Because almost everything we discussed were things I also talked about with Peter Gallagher and Melinda Clark. And their quotes just happen to be slightly better or slightly more useful to mm-hmm. the task at yeah. hand. So it's just, you know, the luck of the draw sometimes.
0: One thing that happens uh, towards the end of this episode. <laughs> That, like, this this episode is in, we're in the glory days, like, the Anna uh, Summer stuff is going, the Marissa Ryan stuff is going, everything's happening, Sandy's getting his triumphant moment, and then Marissa is going to therapy, and uh. she meets... Oliver Trask. So the best Christmas ever is considered like one of the great episodes of the OC, like along with a Tijuana episode that we talked a lot about earlier this year. Like these are, these are some of the highest highs. And then we meet Oliver Trask and Oliver is widely considered uh, one of the big missteps of the OC. And what's hilarious about that is that, again, that usually, that feels like a season two, season three problem where you're like, oh no, this is not, you know, oh no, we had Landry... <laughs> Kill someone? Oh no! Like, but that's not really like a season one mistake you make. Yeah. Um. And what's funny about reading your book is you've got the like Chrismica section, and then we're like immediately into the Oliver uh section in your book. Talk to me about Oliver Trask. Talk to me about what was going on here.
3: Well, it's interesting. They, I mean, Josh and Stephanie had a lot of good clarity on that, and I guess that's what happens when you've run as many shows as they have in the years since the OC, which is. The problem with Oliver wasn't Oliver. The problem isn't like, ooh, we're introducing this big villain because it's soap opera and there are villains. The problem with Oliver is that the audience knew he was bad news and Ryan knew he was bad news and nobody else did. And so it's like this whole thing where everyone looks stupid other than Ryan. Like... Marissa kind of in general, that was a a problem with that character. She often like refused to see what, what was right in front of her face. But like when Seth is denying this, you know, and like he and Ryan are fighting when summer can't see it, you know, when everyone's like, Oh, this, you know, this is a nice guy and it's only Ryan. And eventually it's Luke, but not for a while. Like, that's just frustrating. You know, you do these stories where either they, they should have waited a lot longer to make it so obvious that he was, you know, a sociopath who was trying to steal Marissa away from Ryan or they needed to do something where, like, the entire core four, other than Marissa, you know, all the kids figured this out, but for whatever reason, they couldn't, like, get to Oliver. They couldn't convince Marissa. I think that would have worked. It's just this whole thing where, like, the audience is so far ahead of all the other characters is a problem. You know, it's not like Taylor Hanley's fault. He was was playing the material he was given, and I think that's... In a different context, that would have been fine, but it's just you're watching, you're just spending weeks yelling at the TV saying, Come on, (laughs) like, what's wrong with you? Can't you see this?
0: I have heard other showrunners have given me that sort of identical quote, not in a mistake they made, but sort of explaining the. Let's say in like mystery shows or mystery box shows, if you prefer, whatever, uh, the unfurling of the mystery and how you can't let the audience get too far ahead of the characters. Because then the characters look at, like idiots and we, we don't really want to spend a ton of time with idiots necessarily, like yes. at least not narratively. And that in episodic storytelling, that that's like one of the biggest challenges is how to pace A mystery, let's say. And this isn't really, like, a mystery. This is just, like, a, is this guy bad news or not? But, like, you know, how you pace things so that the audience and the characters are on a similar track. Or you could be, like, a little ahead of them, but not so far ahead that it gets aggravating. I think another thing, correct me if I'm wrong, that Josh and Stephanie said in your book is that they got episodes added to the season order. And they when they padded it out, they padded it out with some extra... Oliver centric stuff that maybe they were like maybe the the chemical equation was off balance a little bit in that way.
3: Yeah, there's that there's that too because ordinarily at the time and and still some broadcast network shows do this. You make 22 episodes a year, which seems like an insane amount compared to a Netflix show. Fox that year ordered 27 episodes of The OC, which is just obscene. Like that, yeah. No one should have to make 27 episodes of television in the span of about 10 months. And it just sort of killed everyone. And I think that's also definitely a reason why they burned through the story too quickly. Is it's just like we've got to fill these episodes somehow. And I, I I do believe some of the Oliver story ran longer than it otherwise would have because we're like, well, what are we supposed to do here? Like, how do we how do we manage to fill the rest of this year?
0: That's so funny. It's it's something I love to talk about when it uh, comes to the penultimate season of Ted Lasso and people. Speaking of holiday episodes, they'll bring up sort of the holiday episode in that season and the Coach Beard episode. And I was like, well, listen they were asked to do two more episodes and they had to fill something that wouldn't like impact their plot in any way. So you got these two episodes or Felicity's final season that comes up a lot because that show was like done and canceled and they're like, oops, JJ and Matt, can you give us a bunch more? And they're like, sure, Felicity's gonna time travel? Question mark, you know? (laughs) Like, what do you do when the network's like, uh, you know, invent some extra story and jam it in in there out of thin air? So I'm sure some people have had elegant creative solutions, but sometimes you get... More Oliver or Felicity Time Traveling or some other weird oddities in television. You know? I mean,
3: I remember I used to visit like uh, I don't do it as much now, but I would like visit writers' rooms and TV productions yeah. on network shows and you'd be and they'd be like on episode 17, 18. And everyone is a zombie by that point. Everyone is just sort of like trying to white knuckle it through the rest of the year and always not being coherent, saying like, wait, what what episode is this? What's happening now? They had like 10 episodes to go past that point. So this is just like, you know, it's kind of amazing that the closing stretch of that season is really good because they, you know, that they were able to recover relatively quickly from the Oliver misstep because they should have just, it should have spiraled out of control from there and it didn't.
1: This episode is brought to you by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. You'll know real when you get it.
2: See website for details.
0: Let's go back to this idea of like a holiday episode as a concept. Um, this has been done across many epi- uh, seasons of television, many different series. Some ex- like absolute masterpieces, some complete misfires. Do you have any like favorite holiday episodes of television that you like to think about, Alan? I didn't prep you for this. I apologize. No, you
3: you didn't. You're you're <laughs> evil, Joanna. Look, I mean, I do like holiday episodes, but I'm sort of trying to think of. The West Wing. The West Wing always, especially in the early years, they would have these great Christmas episodes, you know, the, that I think three years in a row won an actor on that show, the Emmy for for supporting actor. It's like Toby and then Josh and then Leo. Those were really good. Um, you know, the Cheers Thanksgiving episode is a classic where they wind up having the food fight. You know, the WKRP Thanksgiving episode... Where they drop the turkeys from the, the helicopter, yes. and it's like, as God is my witness, I thought turkeys could fly. You know, it's one of the great lines. Um, you know, there, there's more than that, but it's you know, when when you get to be my age and you've watched as much television as I have. Like <laughs> asking that unprompted, like you know, give me ten minutes to start googling, so and I will sorry, give you, Alan. I will give you a list. <laughs> no, but it's it's everything. Like if someone comes up to me and says, "What should I be watching right now?" My face just goes blank. I'm like. Wait, there, there's television? Wait, what? There's uh-huh. television
0: sound right now. <laughs> it's amazing. But I do think that this episode stands up against some of those greats that you mentioned, because though it is a Chrismica, the Chrismica episode, all the other gears of the soap opera plot are also moving at full speed ahead uh, at the same time. We're not pausing to do Chrismica. Chrismica is here on the sideline of you know, a holiday office party plot, and all the other things that come with it.
3: Oh, I, I will get to that in a second, but I just remembered the the Simpsons did this episode called "Holidays of of Christmas Past" uh, or, or "Holidays of Future Past," and it was like made uh, in the twenties, somewhere in the twenty something seasons where they didn't know if the show was going to get renewed. And they're like, well, we should make a series finale just in case. And we started with a Christmas episode. We're going to end with one. And it's set in the future. And Bart and Lisa are both sort of disappointed adults. Uh, and it's just, it's wonderful. Like, it's really fantastic. If the show had ended that way, that would have been really good. So I'd, I don't want to be remiss and forget that. The thing I'll say in, in response to your your question is, the thing that I like that makes a good holiday episode is that it's important that it is a holiday episode, that it's some way tied to the themes of whatever that holiday is, you know, or at least the rituals of that holiday. And so this idea of chrismica of, I'm going to take this sort of complicated thing where I was raised as part of two different backgrounds by parents who sort of were not necessarily engaged with either of their backgrounds, is I'm going to make a super holiday where it's like I get to you know take advantage of both. And then in the midst of that, it's Seth, like, I have these two beautiful women throwing themselves at me. I don't want to have to choose. I'm going to just enjoy both of them hitting on me uh, for as long as I possibly can. Like, Chris becomes a metaphor for that triangle, but it also, in a way, kind of becomes a metaphor for the show, because, as you said, so many things are happening and all the stories are continuing. And so it's like, for a while, there were every episode of The O.C., was a Christmas episode because everything was over overflowing with many many presents.
0: I also love I love that you drew that parallel between Seth deciding not to decide and just can't I have can't I have it all can't I have all my presents all my all my beautiful women. Um, in I had forgotten when I was rewatching this episode, I was like uh, rolling my eyes a bit at Summer and Anna, like competing so hard against each other and sort of sniping at each other. And then I love that it ends with them, you know, Summer loving the comic book that Anna made and Anna telling Summer, like, she looks so beautiful in her Wonder Woman costume. And then them them being like, never mind. <laughs> like, what are we doing here? Like, it's such a great, I mean, I know, I know that it goes on after that. Like, yes. it goes on. But inside this episode, it's like a a Kelly Taylor, I choose me sort of moment for these women where they're like, why are we doing this why would why would we do this you know well
3: I mean one of the sm- the smartest choices that they made was that summer and Anna become friends and they're yeah. friends like even in the midst of this and they continue to be friends while Seth is dating Anna and they continue to be friends while Seth is dating summer and like ultimately none of this is the reason that Anna leaves town which by the way Josh and Stephanie think was probably the single biggest mistake they made in oh, the really? run of It's like, getting rid of Anna and getting rid of Luke. Like, Mm -hmm. keeping them around would have solved so many problems in later years, because the issue they run into is suddenly there's only four main kids, and two of them, Seth and Summer, are pretty much always together, and Ryan and Marissa are often together, and it's like, it becomes math. Well, what stories are you telling then? Whereas if you had six people, you can do a lot more combinations and a lot more mixing and matching And the problem was the audience loved Luke and Anna and they sort of never really liked any of the additions nearly as much. I mean, maybe Olivia Wilde's character, but that was about it. Uh, And obviously Taylor Townsend later, but like they kept trying to introduce people and the audience kept rejecting them. And if they'd kept these two around, like things would have been a little easier. Um, Yeah, the girls become friends. I think that's like a very smart thing. It's never, they're competing, but it's not like cat fighting or anything They really do like each other. And for whatever reason, they are both into this adorable narcissist. Uh, And, you know, and he doesn't want to choose. And eventually he's just like, well, can't we be friends? And both of them say, I don't want to be your friend, Cohen. And, you know, it's like, if I've made you a comic book and if I've dressed up as Wonder Woman and you're still like, let's be friends. I mean, come on, man. What are you doing here?
0: I'm wondering what parallels you can draw between like I don't know that it's as clear of a parallel, but I also like the way, because we've been watching Ryan sort of slowly round his edges off so that he can fit into the Cohen blended family. And this idea of like Ryan hanging his stocking, like Ryan choosing to buy into Chris Mika by the end of the episode, but also this concept of like, you don't have to carry this. Like Marissa's problems are Marissa's problems. And like, on the one hand, you could say, Maybe if Ryan had gone to therapy with her, she wouldn't have met Oliver and all like all of that stuff wouldn't have happened the way that it happened. Yes. Um but I don't think that's the I don't think the message is Ryan should have taken full responsibility for Marissa's issues. Like this idea of we've already met Ryan's mom, we've already seen Ryan's mom like ruin casino night among other things with her substance abuse problems. And so this like sort of liberation of this Temporary reprieve, not liberation, temporary reprieve of Ryan as like, you're solely responsible for Marissa is, I think, a a sort of beautiful element of the episode.
3: Oh, the scene where Sandy tells him like, you don't have to do this, you don't have to carry this, is so lovely. I mean, and that's another thing that the show would lose in later years is there's not nearly as much of Sandy and Kirsten acting as parents, both to the boys, but really to all of the kids because the kids sort of just start going off and being in their own plots and being treated more and more as like adults. Uh, And so that was a key element of the show that they lost. But no, that's a great scene and a great argument. And certainly like the idea of Ryan having to bodyguard Marissa 24-7, that is not healthy, that's not good. Um, And it speaks to a larger problem, not only in their relationship, but I guess in the writing of Marissa, which ultimately, you know, three years later led to the disastrous decision they made To kill her off. I mean, that's ultimately their biggest, biggest regret. But by the time they did that, the show was already spiraling in a way. And I think, like, if they'd sort of, if the seasons before that had been stronger, they might not have reached the point where they had to do that.
0: It's so fascinating to talk about, like, because when you say Chrismica, or you say the OC, like, when we covered the OC over the Prestige feed for three episodes, people loved those Prestige episodes and they love celebrating the OC and they love that feeling of nostalgia and remembering what it was like at the beginning when the OC debuted in the summer, and they were loving the show. And I I can't think of another example of a show that is like both so beloved in its way. And then anytime people who talk about television talk about it, they're like, and then this was a disaster, and then that was a huge mistake, and then they did you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. it's such a fantastic whiplash story of like meteoric rise and then terrible crash after terrible crash. Um, And I love that it's all captured in your book. I think it's incredible.
3: No, it's good. I mean, the the one thing that was sort of interesting when I did the rewatch for the book was I remembered season two as being much messier than it actually was. And there's a lot in season two that doesn't really work, but there's a lot that does. There's a lot that I really sort of enjoyed in it more than I thought. It's not really until season three that the wheels come completely off and the level of candor that everybody had about, all the ways season three was bad and all the reasons why is maybe some of my favorite parts of the book. Cause it's like, it's, 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 it's storytelling one-on-one. It's not just about what happened in the OC season three. It's just all the ways that a TV show in general can go awry if you're not keeping your eye on the ball about this, about this, about this, and about this.
0: I love it. Um, Anything else you want to say about this episode of television or The O.C. in general?
3: Well, the one, the one sort of interesting thing that came up that we haven't talked about when discussing this is this was Stephanie Savage's first, like, produced script of anything. And right? she tells the story about she's writing it and she gives her first draft to Josh. And Josh is looking at it and his first note is, you're making Seth way too smart. And and Stephanie goes, wait, what are you talking about? Seth is super smart, right? And Josh is like, no, he's not that type of nerd. He just likes comic books and like indie music. He's not a genius. And she says, oh. And like, and that's the way they wrote him going forward. And eventually you find out that like Summer is super smart and Seth isn't. And that sort of, that was an interesting turning point for the writing of that character.
0: I think that um, the idea of Cavalier and Clay is an interesting sort of threading Uh, the needle because that's in his like starter pack, right? So it's like, would he be reading a Michael Shabin book if he's not that smart? Maybe not, but it's about comic books exactly. and superheroes. So maybe so, maybe so. And and Jewish identity. Um, so that's so interesting. Um, the impact of this episode and the like on the concept of charismatica cannot be understated, right? Like, or not be overstated, rather, like ChrisMcCut.com is a thing that launches out of this episode. Time Magazine says uses ChrisMcCut as one of their buzzwords of 2004. Like, it's just, I can't think of another... that is more closely associated well that what you say it's like what you say and Chris are like the twin legacies of the OC (laughs) Um, and I love that I love that for us I mean the the
3: weird thing is and this happened with Parks and Rec too where it's like they popularize this thing and then they wind up making no money off of it because it never occurs to anyone oh we should trademark Chris Um, you know, or we should treat trademark, yourself tr- for oh, Galentine's <laughs> Day. And now Galentine's there's like Day, these yeah. whole cottage industries devoted to all these holidays and no one who actually wrote them sees a dime from it.
0: That's so funny. Um, all right. Well, treat yourself to uh, Alan Steppenwell's Welcome to the OC book. Give it a, blade, a belated Hanukkah present or an early Christmas present or a perfect Christmas present whatever you prefer um, the book is out now Alan Sephamol thank you so much for joining me I really appreciate it
3: it is at my absolute pleasure every single time Joanna
0: this episode is produced by the great Sasha Schall and uh, happy holidays to everyone happy Christmas and we'll see you soon bye